Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and the Trump presidency. And before we start this episode, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to our new Not the New York Times offer, which we're offering to encourage readers to subscribe to The Spectator's US edition, which is excellent. I edit it. And the reason we're running the Not the New York Times offer is because we are very unlike the New York Times. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the famous newspaper, the most famous newspaper that America has, recently hounded out one of its best editors because the paper had published a slightly controversial article. The paper's staff, and bizarrely many of its readers, now demand total conformity of opinion in the opinion pages. We think that's very boring, and we want to tell America that the spectator is different. We are a magazine, not a newspaper, and we take a very different approach to journalism. We've been around longer than The Times, in fact, 23 years longer to be precise, and we encourage our writers to disagree with each other. We want arguments and we want people to disagree. It makes for much better reading. We also try not to take ourselves too seriously, and unlike The Grey Lady, as The New York Times is known, we never confuse the serious with the dull. We're new to America and we want Americans to know what we're all about which is why we're offering this special Not The New York Times offer with 50% off the normal price. If you go to spectator.us forward slash not dash NYT dash and you enter the code not NYT, N-O-T-N-Y-T, you will get 50% off the Spectator's US edition. Please take up the offer. I'm joined today by Marcus Roberts, who is head of international politics at YouGov, the polling company, and we're going to be asking just how bad are the polls for Donald Trump? Now, Marcus, you and I had quite an amusing time four years ago when you were very, very adamant that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidential election and you agreed to eat your hat, which you then duly did on Twitter because you're a man of honour. How are you feeling about this election? I imagine you're going to be a bit more cautious, but the polls do look very, very good indeed for Joe Biden at the moment, don't they? Yes, I'm going to try and approach this election with a little bit more circumspection, and I'm going to try and share with your listeners perhaps one or two additional caveats that age has wisened me to. That said, these numbers are about as good as Joe Biden could possibly hope for and about as worrying as Donald Trump might fear. Indeed, they're so striking, I think it's easiest or perhaps most enjoyable to characterize them as re-election numbers for an incumbent, very good re-election numbers for an incumbent, as long as the incumbent in question is President Joe Biden. Because these kind of polling leads, over nine points on the uh, 538 average, showing eight, an eight-point lead in the YouGov poll of just yesterday nationally in America, are the kind of numbers that an incumbent president seeking re-election who's going to win that re-election by a handsome amount would be expecting to see. Indeed, Joe Biden now has the distinction of being one of only three candidates for the presidency to top the 50% voting intention number at this point in the cycle, the other two being Richard Nixon in 1972 and Ronald Reagan in 1984. Both of those incumbent presidents, of course, went on to win dramatic landslide victories. So Joe Biden, in the parallel universe in which he is enjoying the third term of the Obama-Biden restoration project, is doing very well indeed. All of this speaks to the fact that Donald Trump looks very much to the American people like the outsider campaigning with, with fiery rhetoric. 
even whilst Joe Biden is offering them calm, Rose Garden-like reassurance. Well, there is an extent to which the Trump campaign will try and fight as though sort of it is an odd position to be in as president to try and fight as the outsider. But they will try and pitch that. And they're already trying to sort of generate a comeback narrative. And with the economy recovering, you could perhaps see how that happens. I'm curious as to how Biden's polling looks in comparison to Clinton's at about this time four years ago. I mean, I know it's it's better nationally, is it not? What about how's it, how's he performing in the swing states compared to where Clinton was? Okay, so Secretary Clinton in uh, late June 2016 was enjoying low single-digit opinion poll leads as opposed to Vice President Biden now enjoying high single-digit opinion poll leads, or indeed low double-digit, in some cases, opinion poll leads. So that's a marked difference right there and then. As for the swing states, you've asked exactly the right question, Freddie, because as we all have learned very much as a result of Bush versus Gore in 2000 and Trump versus Clinton in 2016, it is not a popularity contest. The American presidency is decided by a race to 270 electoral college votes. And what is happening in the swing states determines who wins that race. The swing states continue to be, on balance, slightly more Republican than the national average. This is what allows the Democrats to routinely win the popular vote, even as periodically they lose the presidency in the Electoral College. To give you a sense of that, you have states like New Hampshire or Michigan that are basically less than a point difference between the national average and a Republican lean, whereas you have states like Ohio that are trending Republican quite heavily. You'd expect Ohio now to be roughly five points more Republican than the national average. At the moment, Joe Biden is performing so well nationally that he is subsuming all of that inbuilt Republican advantage in terms of the swing states. So the Republican majority advantage in those states is not affecting the Electoral College outcome. Were the polls to dramatically narrow, Trump's chances would shoot up. And he's even polling in some states where you, you know, there's even sort of Democratic hopes arising in states like Texas and even Georgia, I gather. Yes, and this is really quite striking, actually. After all, just yesterday, we had a Fox poll, a Fox News poll of all organizations, showing that Vice President Biden was leading President Trump 49-40 in Florida. He was leading 47-45 in Georgia, 47-45 in North Carolina. He was even, per Fox News, and this is the staggering part, it's per Fox News, He was even leading President Trump by one point, 45 to 44, in Texas. Now, what is the really telling thing about those four states, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas? It's not that Joe Biden is leading in them. It's that Joe Biden doesn't need to win any of those states to win the presidency. And yet, he is leading in them at this time. And that, again, is so markedly different from where we were four years ago. Once again, my caveats, because we've learned our lesson, it is not true to say that this means that the election is by any measure in the bag for Joe Biden, but it is to say that he is in one of the strongest polling positions for a challenger in post-war history. Well, let's look at the ways in which Trump might be able to win and, and what his path to victory might be. If the economy recovers very quickly, we could see his job approval going back up. I'd also point out that his job approval 
isn't actually that low. I mean, it's still around 40%, which is not far below where it was when he started the presidency. And he does seem like a better campaigner than Joe Biden, whose campaign strategy seems to be to make their candidate as invisible as possible. That's not going to be possible as November approaches. And you could see his mental performances have not been great. You could see a debate in which Donald Trump completely destroys Joe Biden or Joe Biden just sort of isn't able to function. I mean, in terms of campaigning, you'd think that Trump has some advantages. Yeah, Trump has proven himself a very fiery and effective campaigner in terms of rallying the base historically. And you're right to point out that historically, Trump's approval rating has often dropped precipitously low during times of his distinct unpopularity, only to recover fairly quickly once he stops tweeting, to be blunt. However, Joe Biden does have some significant advantages here, which is, firstly, in terms of what Trump has done wrong, he has definitely mishandled the coronavirus crisis as far as the American people are concerned, and he has definitely mishandled the Black Lives moment in American politics as far as the American people are concerned. In both of these cases, we're seeing voters express themselves in qualitative data through focus groups and in YouGov polling week in, week out as being upset with the president, disappointed by the president, believing that the president is somehow dividing America instead of bringing America together. All of this is affecting the kind of Obama-Trump voters, the converts that Donald Trump won in the swing states four years ago that delivered him the presidency very adversely. He's pushing these people away with his tweets, with his rhetoric, with his campaign style. Meanwhile, on the flip side, Joe Biden is definitely gaining the advantages of A, not having to run a particularly strenuous campaign schedule for whatever reason, but B, also his brand. Joe Biden is a candidate who, over 50 years nearly in politics, has built a brand of being the candidate of the working Joe. Some people may even remember that when he first came on stage, Barack Obama announced as his running mate in 2008, the opening words out of Joe Biden's mouth were, I'm here for the cops, I'm here for the firefighters, I'm here for our soldiers, I'm here for our veterans. His political identity has been built around an appeal to blue-collar America, and that's a very valuable insulation against the politics of Trump. It's also an advantage that should be noted that Hillary Clinton didn't have come 2016. I would say that it might be quite hard for him to be there for the cops when large chunks of his party are campaigning to defund or even abolish the police. And yet Joe Biden prides himself on a politics that Ronald Reagan would be very familiar with. Reagan's old quote of an and, not a but. Joe Biden is going to base himself around being the candidate of both social justice and law and order. Joe Biden is trying very hard and his campaign is working extremely hard to avoid falling into the trap of having to choose between support alone for the protesters or support alone for the police. His argument to the American people is going to be that you can't have law and order without social justice and that social justice needs to be protected by law and order. It's a more difficult, more complicated argument than the president's. But on the other hand, it is an argument that if he lands can lead to majoritarian support in the country. I'd like to ask about how polling has changed in the last four years. I mean, I think something that happened in 2016, both with Brexit and with Trump, was that pollsters were not picking up people 
who actually were willing to vote. There were sort of sections of the population, sections of both populations, that were just not being picked up by pollsters. And there was another problem of dishonesty in the way people replied to polls, or not just the shy factor, but the actual lie factor. I wonder if you've adjusted your modelling and how confident are you that you'll get it right this time? More confident than last time, but more circumspect too, because once bitten, twice shy. I would say that the 2016 polling mistake has three important elements to it that we should bear in mind. One, that it was accurate in terms of the national polling picture. Two, that that didn't matter because pollsters got the state of the swing states wrong. But three, that pollsters almost across the board have adjusted for the reasons why we made mistakes in the swing states. And that's particularly around making sure that we get the right balance of education in the polls. Previously, pollsters weren't taking into account sufficiently education levels in weighting their samples. Now I think any decent self-respecting pollster is taking education into account. And that's certainly what we at YouGov has spent a lot of time getting right. And that's why come the 2018 midterms, our MRP model on the congressional elections, a very difficult election to forecast, was accurate to nearly 96%, an astonishing degree of accuracy in congressional elections. So we have learned our lessons and we have come back accurate, even though we acknowledge that we didn't get it all right last time. Are there any states which Trump is performing stronger, more strongly than he did in 2016? I would say that Iowa and Ohio continue to look better in terms of their fundamentals than they did going into 2016 for the Republicans overall. Also, Florida continues to be a real headache for the Democrats. I think the Democratic Party was very disappointed that they didn't do better, particularly in the Florida gubernatorial election two years ago in the 2018 midterms with the defeat of, of Andrew Gillum there. So I think that, that those states are states where the Republican Party have some more hope for. The problem that the Republicans have is that their numbers in Michigan look very bad. There's a question mark over Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania isn't looking very good for them either. At the same time, demographically, states like Arizona and Georgia are trending towards the Democrats, and at a slower pace, so is Texas. Now, I don't expect to see Georgia, Arizona, or Texas cross into the blue column yet, but their rate of demographic change is so great that sooner rather than later, they're going to become pivotal battleground states all of their own. And that will be to the Democrats' advantage, even if that may be in the 2024 or 2028 general election. And how much of it, you talk about the demographics, how much of this is down to deep shifts in the US population that the Republicans can't really do much about at this moment? And how much of it is down to just the fact that in January, Trump was looking pretty strong and it's just been a very bad three months for him politically. I personally subscribe to the belief that politics always trumps demographics and that those politicians, pollsters and strategists who put their faith in demographics as destiny have learned, be it through the Brexit referendum, the Clinton defeat or any number of elections globally around the world, that a rising cosmopolitan liberal electorate is no guarantee of an automatic majority in politics, that the politics of politics matters more than the numbers. And this is why Trump is in such trouble, because he has got the politics wrong, as well as being behind the curve demographically. 
it would be one thing for him to be behind the curve demographically and be nailing the politics of it. But the way he has divided Americans, as so skillfully exploited by groups such as the Lincoln Project right now, a group of former Republicans who are appealing to Republicans to cross over and lend their vote to Joe Biden in this election, that speaks to a fundamental weakness and failure on the political side, not one on the demographic side, that is allowing Joe Biden to achieve these numbers over President Trump. There is a fair amount of time to go now. There's still four months or so. And if you look at Barack Obama in 2012, admittedly further back, but in January, his position was looking quite delicate. And he managed to rally a fairly convincing win in the end, although it was it was tighter than people remember, but he won quite quite clearly. He used the advantages of the presidency to sustain his campaign and to present himself as, as the leader in 2012. Is it possible that Trump can do that? Uh, Yes, it definitely is. And it's worth remembering probably the precedent of 1988 as well, where at this point in the cycle, Michael Dukakis was five points ahead of President George H.W. Bush. President H.W. Bush ended up eight points over. So that's a 13-point change over the course of those months. Now, that is still less of, of the change that is required in this instance for Trump to overcome the Biden advantage but it does point to a playbook by which this can occur, namely a return to the presidential mantle, doing the politics right, moving on from the divisive tweets and into the more base-pleasing politics that President Trump has been more astute at using Twitter for in the past rather than in this crisis, and also potentially getting a handle on, on the COVID crisis itself. Because I think that it's the combination of different factors that is leading to some of these problems for Trump. However, if he can get a handle on them, if the COVID number begins to come down, if the protests begin to wind up, if he takes a slightly more presidential tone, I'm not talking about a conciliatory tone, I'm talking about a presidential tone overall, then he can begin to restore some of his strength and his, and his dignity, and that could be a tremendous source of, of electoral potency for him. Is that enough? Probably not, but perhaps so, particularly if combined with mistakes on the other side. As you say, Joe Biden has not always been the most deft of candidates in every political circumstance he's faced. He has struggled in debates sometimes. He has struggled in voter interactions at times on camera. And so there are opportunities for Biden screw-ups that Trump could take advantage of as well, because, of course, it's not just enough to win. You also need your opponent to lose. So there is definitely a route there for the president, but it is a difficult route. And it also requires some of the fundamentals of American politics in the future being a little bit different than they are right now. And the two big things I would say look for for change on is, does the president's response to coronavirus improve in public perception terms? And does the president's response to the Black Lives Matter moment improve in public perception terms. If those things happen, his job approval number should come back up. And if there's ever a difference between the job approval number and the voting intention number that a good rule of thumb might be, look at whichever number is higher and presume that that is the real Trump voting intention number. And that is really the kind of, of support level that the president can expect. And that's probably his route to, once again, losing the popular vote, but winning the electoral college. Very, very tough, but still possible. Well, that's very interesting. One, but one of the things that Team Trump seems to be quite fixated on is the African-American vote and this idea that they might be able to raise it from 8% to about 16%. And if they can do that, then uh, particularly in 
certain swing states, that will mean victory for them. Are you seeing any sign or indication that their appeals to black voters are working? That certainly would deliver victory for them. I see no evidence in the data whatsoever that that is occurring right now. Indeed, if anything, by his stance on the Black Lives Matter moment, Trump is undoing one of the big advantages that he had that led to his success electorally four years ago against Hillary Clinton, which is that African-American turnout just wasn't as high in 2016 as it was in 2012 or 2008 for President Obama. What I believe is happening instead, and what some of you guys polling so far shows, and this particularly the national level, is that African-Americans are more energized by the politics right now, more likely to vote, and indeed more likely to vote Democratic. So sure, if that were to happen as you lay out, President Trump would be on course for re-election, but it is not backed up by the data right now. And I suppose one other factor that might work in Trump's favour is if the polling is so strong for Biden that it suggests a foregone conclusion, which could then give him a sort of narrow, give Trump a narrow opening because you might get depressed turnout among Democratic voters. Yeah, you hear this a lot in politics. And I take a slightly heretical view personally, which is I don't believe that complacency ever breeds defeat for one side. I rather believe that the smell of defeat, the stench of defeat, um, is a bigger problem for the candidate who's behind rather than the smell of victory or the aroma of success for the candidate that is in front. I think you're more likely to, personally speaking, um, as an as a ex-politico of, of 20 years standing, I think voters are more likely to turn out for the candidate who they think is going to win because they want to be associated with a winner than stay at home because they think it's a foregone conclusion. Now, other people think differently than this, but that's been my experience of, of the last 20 years. Marcus, it's a great pleasure to talk to you as always, and I hope you'll come on again before November. So do I, and I hope we end up with no hat eating this time. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. The Spectator is looking for the UK's brightest entrepreneurs for our Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by private bank Julius Baer. If you run a business that brings radical positive change and is capable of achieving national or international impact, we want to hear from you. Apply by 1st of July at spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator.